Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day with a podcast series about the ideas that are in the air and up for discussion at the ninth annual Global Peter Drucker Forum here in Vienna. Vienna is the city where Professor Drucker was born more than a hundred years ago, and his ideas about management and society remain very influential. With me is Nilifer Merchant. She's a former tech executive, now uh, an author and speaker. She lives in Silicon Valley, California, right in the middle of things. And uh, she's been talking about the never-ending quest for human prosperity. Well, I was actually really trying to address the question of there is right now a tension of human prosperity and economic prosperity. We have not, over hundreds of years, reconciled that tension. Until we actually do, we will never move forward. And so I was actually trying to provide a framework and an example of how people can do that. But the tension sort of seems to be uh, getting worse rather than better at the moment. We've had maybe a shattering of the implicit presumptions in America that as the nation and the corporations got better off, so would the workforce with backlashes to that idea. There are big question marks about the economic, the business model that's been so prevailing for the past hundred years. That's because most of the business models that are in place today are taking advantage of people in in the way they're creating content, but not also celebrating the value they're creating in the process. For example, if Facebook uses all of us in the mix to contribute to the content, but their model business model rewards only eyeballs, they can, of course, be incentivized to take money from Russia to do advertising against American citizens to change our election results. Like they have no incentive in their business model, in their construct, to take care of citizens and what the social contract is while they're accomplishing their goals. Is that a tendency of the new digital businesses as a whole, or is it something that happens in the development stage of a completely new sort of sort of business model? I've been studying the role of business for the last couple hundred years, and what I've realized actually is this tension has been at play all over the centuries, and that people are not being intentional. The business leaders, and I use leaders very loosely there in that sense, uh, they're in charge, but they're not acting like leaders because they're only owning their private objectives and not also owning any kind of social agenda of what is the commons, what is our reason for belonging to one another, and we're lacking that, you know, those champions in our society right now. So they make money out of presuming there's a coherent society, but they don't do very much to contribute to it? It's almost the barren stage, right, where you just come and take for yourself instead of actually understanding there is a king stage where you're responsible for your citizens. And if your citizens aren't taken care of, ultimately you suffer as a king. Uh, we need a little bit more of that role. And most of, the, most of the leaders, and most of them are young men, and so we often in Silicon Valley call it the bros. The bros have no sense of ownership uh, as adults, sort of like, what is our role? They still act as if they're just young'uns running around with no responsibility to the whole. And you say that as a Silicon Valley person, because inside Silicon Valley there is one view. Outside, Silicon Valley seems rather weird and introverted and intense. But you're an insider. I am an insider, and I think that's one of the reasons I can call out my fellow you know, Silicon Valley people and say, listen, we deserve better to do better. We deserve better as citizens, and we have a higher onus on us. We're, we're helping create the social fabric when we're connecting people. We actually need to own something in that process.
I was going to say they have invented ways of uh, empowering and enabling people, but they don't seem to respect what they've created. Here's the thing, right? Whose interests are being served? And if value creation is only defined as monetary value, then you're not celebrating the full range of value creation. Value creation, of course, is about the social fabric at all times, but it depends on whose advantage are you trying to serve. And right now, all the economic models of venture capital are funding 96% go to white men, almost all young, almost all out of Stanford, almost all CS degrees. You have a very strong bias towards bros, who, by the way, are only trying to solve one problem. They're only trying to solve the problem of what did their mother once do for them. So you look at the food delivery services, the dry cleaning delivery services, the car delivery services, uh, the book delivery services, and so on. Or, you know, the fact that most of these young men could not actually socialize in college and actually talk to another person in the eye. So they built a social network. <laughs> we, have, we have young bros who have lack of social understanding building a series of our tools because they have access to the money. You're you're rather bitter about this, aren't you? I want to challenge Silicon Valley to do better because right now we're actually watching the entire world fall apart for lack of good leadership. That's a big call to action. And, And Peter Drucker would want myself as a thinker and leader to ask more of ourselves. You're talking as a non-white, non-male. Absolutely. And I'm talking as a person who believes that ultimately the way in which we belong to each other is also what we're able to create together. Using the tools that the new bros have invented and uh, made available to the world the networked society. Well, I'd actually argue something else, which is society has always been social, and women have often been the caretakers of that social construct, and now we have a bunch of bros building social constructs where their definition of social is a group of people gathered together, and individuals counting as communities if they're in population, but social is you only really belong to a community if you actually belong to something together. You have something that you own together. Community is not simply eight people, you know, added up, and it's this—it's a greater sum, a whole that unites us, and nobody's taking care of that piece. And the reason that society's breaking right now is because women are not in charge, and women are, and it's, we've got the wrong group in charge with the wrong financing behind them, and that's causing this distortion and breakdown of our society. Now, that's very straightforward to say, but actually hard to do something about. These are powerful people, powerful bros, as you call them. Power changes when when we actually allow it to change. So the first step, of course, is for those of us who have ideas for the world and what can be done, that we start acting differently. So let me give an example. SheEO is a network of networks focused on figuring she, out... She, her. S-H-E-E-O. So thinking about the roles of leaders and figuring out how to actually fund women-based entrepreneurs that can actually offer uh, their set of vision to the world and by making sure they're capitalized. And so CEO is a network of networks where women contribute $1,000 per person until they raise a fund. That fund helps find uh, companies that are, and matches them up and make sure also that that network of CEOs get access to the advisors they need, which of course is built in by the money you've given you almost always are getting high worth, high talent individuals and growing up those firms. That is an alternative model of people taking charge of their destiny and saying, you know what, if venture capital, which is mostly male and mostly white, refuses to give money to the rest of the world, then the rest of us will figure out a way to actually put our own purchasing dollars to work. 
that isn't the infrastructure for the new digital networked economy now in place. Eight of the ten biggest companies in America now are the new Facebook, Microsoft, that kind of thing, run by males. They're in place. Um, new women companies can't come along and shake that. This is a definition of the next 20 years, isn't it? What's happened in Silicon Valley over the last 40 years. So will this will play out, right? So the reason that these current companies are in charge is because they've had access to capital and the network has supported that. So now the question is, can a group of us actually take back the power that we actually know we have and the capacity to contribute? And build our own network and figure out a way to build the next 20 set of companies that that actually matter, that hold a different point of view. But my point is that the future is already in place with these great big companies and the kind of things that will come along, the new companies that will come along in the next 20 years will not be as shaping of the future as are the ones already in place, using the cloud to get more and more powerful with their huge data flows, for example. I'll tell you, I was just at a forum, Thinkers 50, a couple days ago, and I happened to be on stage with uh, Tom Peters. We did sort of a fireside chat, and I asked the audience in that conversation how many of them trusted Facebook. And this is like some of the most influential management thinkers in the world in the room together. And you know what they said? No one raised their hand. And so I don't think that company has the kind of commitment that you ultimately need for that company to stay in charge. I understand they're in charge today, but I believe that we are actually seeing them for what they are and that they're failing us as a society. And that new women-run companies would have... Tom Peters, you mentioned, he's been going on about the neglected role of women in, in business, in America in particular, for the last 40 years, to my personal knowledge. Absolutely. He's an absolute feminist and quite a champion. And, and what, I'm, what I'm actually offering is a set of solutions. I'm actually watching those companies that are being disruptors and trying to figure out how to help them go do that. This is personal. You were there in Silicon Valley looking after the introduction of lots of new brands, lots of new companies within the existing system for an awful long time. Yeah, so I've actually grown up in Silicon Valley. In fact, when I was little, I actually picked apricots on the land that Apple was first built on. My brother, my sister, and I went and picked apricots and earned money that way. I would be at the very bottom with a baseball mitt. And so watching the orchards get replaced by Apple and then ultimately working in that building and then later on working in that exact same building running North America Division for Autodesk and so on, I've grown up in Silicon Valley. And so I know that it wasn't always bros. It wasn't always finance-driven. I know that means also we can create change. But it's women who are going to do it, is it? It's going to be everyone. Let's put it this way. The current group that's in charge has not delivered for us. We need a new set of ideas. Newness almost always comes in the form of new shapes, new figures, new people. And right now there are three groups that are underrepresented. One is the, the young or the old, so age. Ageism is very prevalent in Silicon Valley. Second, of course, has to involve gender because we're 52% of the U.S. population and we're not getting our fair share, share of ideas invested in. And the third is certainly people of color are highly underrepresented, even at a worse situation than gender. And so uh, we need to, to look at those power players and figure out how to get them a seat at the table because they have ideas to contribute. Even though you are of Indian origins, are you? I'm born in India and raised in California. Even though the role of the Indian in uh, Silicon Valley moved, what, 30 years ago, they were all backroom boys, yeah. and then came the 20 years later where every IPO had to have an Indian on the board. That was sort of the badge of success. So there has been some advancement, hasn't there? 
Funny thing is that group tends to be the group that assimilates. They're often called a model minority because they do assimilate to the norms of white culture. But we need we need a f- much fresher set of ideas. And, and the thing I've been working on for the last few years is really this thesis of onlyness, that each of us stand in a spot in the world only we stand in. And when connected together, you can actually do distributed scale of those ideas. And I think right now, based on the research I just did, we're largely monetizing about 31% of the population and leaving out 69% of the population. Basically, a group of people are dismissed, not because they don't have good ideas, but because we first notice the packaging that idea comes in and therefore can't actually even consider whether or not that idea has validity. And that represents the economic opportunity. That represents the upside. So it's not just a social good, which is, of course, important, but it's about the set of ideas and creativity and judgment and decision-making that we can enable with allowing a much broader set of people on board. These ideas of yours, did they develop over time, or were you annoyed, irritated, frustrated when you were working embedded in those big Silicon Valley companies? It's funny, when I talk about it, I think about it in the form of three books. So the first book I wrote, I was basically noticing that ideas could come from the janitor or the admin, and most often they were we were looking at middle management or CEOs to come up with it. And so that book was called The New How, How to Close That gap between strategy and execution by actually listening to every party. Then the second book I come along, and so you'll see a theme here, second book I come along and go, ideas can come from outside the perimeter of the organization. So of course you should break down those barriers and figure out how to actually monetize ideas from anywhere, because what if you could do that? And I showed 10 really solid economic examples of that. And the third one then, you can sense my, my lineage of ideology kind of developing, which I'm like, actually, if ideas can come from anyone and anywhere, and maybe you could even scale them in decentralized models, then couldn't you actually access a pool of resources and have power sharing in a way that we don't have today? And so um, I think my frustration has been growing and my understanding and sophistication of how might we actually solve that has grown too. This is exhilarating to listen to, but difficult to do, isn't it? Are these really practical ideas, this evolution? You know, some people think that I'm 20 years ahead of my time. I think Peter Drucker, since we're at Drucker Forum, was probably 40 years ahead of his time. And I actually consider it when people say, is it practical? And I go, well, we may not know exactly how to build that bridge, but I can help you know that we need to get to the other side. And then other people will join in and actually figure out how to build the bridge. Uh, So I consider it quite a compliment that they may not quite be practical yet, but to point to the future and start going in that direction. Meanwhile, there are other big sort of associated worries about the rise of artificial intelligence and the threat to jobs, the really big apparent threat from thinking robots rather than uh, mechanical robots. That complicates the picture even more. For sure. And in fact, it's the reason why we need to tap into people's ideas. So I was just at a firm... 75,000 people there, and they realized a lot of their work is very uh, manual. They're basically asking a lot of talented people to not apply their creativity or decision-making or judgment. And they said, what should we do about that given that AI will come? And I said, well, okay, so just assume the premise that every job that can and will be automated will be. So just, you know, like go. And then what's left? What would you actually ask people to do? What is their decision-making and creativity needed for? And everyone was sitting there stumped because what it would mean is a 75,000-person organization today might be 20,000, but they might do much higher value-add things. And then the question is, 
what do we do with the other? I mean, there's there's an economic and policy perspective of what do we do. But I think the whole well, some thing, people say you need a basic income because these people are not employable in the 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 forthcoming new world. I'm actually breaking the model. If you just listen to everything I'm saying, I'm actually breaking the model of business is the only model of a hierarchical centralized business. I believe that you can actually get work done, not go get a job, but get work done and create value in a distributed, decentralized way where each of us as a node in that system has something of value to add. And the question is, can we get plugged into different ways where we can create value? And so what are the network of networks that we can create that will allow all of us to freeform teams, solve problems we find interesting that we're capable of adding value to, even in small ways, and be able to come together as we need to and come apart as we need to also. A conventional person would say that we need organizations for most people to define work and produce jobs, and that you're asking too much of people to link themselves together and do sort of um, thinky stuff. Well, today, people, connected people can do what once only large centralized organizations could. That is a profound shift that is already happening, and I can give you example and example. But I, as we think about that, if connected people can now do what once centralized organizations do, then you might think centralized organizations are more a legacy of where we've been and not necessary for where we're going. And so we don't need as many of them. We certainly don't need them to be as large. And we can reimagine what that looks like. Ah, what you've been talking about, wild ideas that you've <laughs> written about. Yeah, so it, you know, the example I was just talking about in centralized organizations really coming apart I actually wrote that book with Harvard Business Review in 2011, 2012, and at the time I thought it was really obvious. It's five years looking back and I'm realizing most people still are trying to see the implication of that. Um, So uh, yes, I'm continuing to chase wilder and wilder ideas because I see us broken as a society, as an economy for human prosperity, and we have to find a model that will allow more ideas to count. But it's not surprising that established organizations are not responsive to this, partly because they've made so much money out of doing things their way, and secondly, because of the inertia of an organization. As soon as you create a bricks-and-mortar organization, you are building a sort of shell around this thing, aren't you? Dysfunctionality and all. Power preserves power. So you will keep doing what you've done because that's what's worked in the past. And then people will keep working with you because they understand that you're in charge. And so I really do think it's going to take a pretty big disruption. And I think decentralized work is going to be part of that. I think AI is certainly going to be a part of it because AI is going to naturally shrink those companies. And as people get displaced, they're going to have to think about, well, where can I add value in the world? And it will start to drive a different set of conversations. And and hopefully we can manage that transition well enough where we don't have complete anarchy. But it's very hard to think about something as radical as this, a change in the way we work, a change in the way we live, because... In that wonderful remark by the Canadian Marshall McLuhan, we see the future through the rearview mirror of the past over and over again, don't we? It's, it's kind of comforting and natural. For those of us who are thinkers in the world, we need to contribute our forward-looking ideas knowing that sometimes people can't quite listen to us yet, but we're going to help build out that foundation of where we're going to go. How do you go down in the companies in the valley? I challenge them a lot. And yet the companies like Google, I'm getting a chance to come in and talk to them next week or a week, two weeks from now. Those are companies that are actually like saying, okay, push us, push us to actually figure out what yeah, to but do. You're next. basically saying, I don't like you, aren't you? Well, I'm saying that what you're doing right now is actually going to hurt you in the end. So if you are 
Facebook and you do not recognize the social construct, of course you're going to fail because no one will trust you. Of course that's going to cause you to be able to you know, erode your brand and ultimately fail. If you are Google and not understanding how to leverage the talent of many more people of color and women and so on, of course you're not going to be as innovative as the company who does. So I'm actually offering them both a challenge and an opportunity. Nenifer Merchant, that was wild. Thank you very much indeed. This is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day. Another podcast coming up soon.